When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You go back to the start of civilization and you have something called the Stone Age. <laughs> and if you don't start learning how to bang the rocks together and make fire <laughs> and make cutting implements, you stay an animal. And I think that's material knowledge. It's materials that build society. Society, culture, and most obviously, the places we live, they're shaped by materials. Materials we discover, materials we invent, and even by some that we pretty much ignore. We wouldn't be who we are without them. Skyscrapers, indoor plumbing, a dry, warm house that's free of roaming wild boars. Materials have made all of that possible. So which ones have defined us? And what's in our future? From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. At this old house, we're a little obsessed with materials. New innovations and technologies mean we can improve the way we build, and ultimately, the way we live. And that's been true of humanity for centuries. The ages of civilization are named after them. You know, there's the Stone Age, then there's the Copper Age, another big leap, and you've got the Bronze Age, and then you have the Iron Age, and so on to the present day, which arguably, well, you could call the, the present society the Plastic Age. Materials are Mark Miodovnik's expertise. He's the author of Stuff Matters, exploring the marvelous materials that shape our man-made world. And he's all about the connection between materials and society. I'm professor of materials and society at University College London. So materials create society? Materials make society cohesive? They bring it together? What is that idea? We are what we make? Yeah, that, that's essentially it. I mean, you, you sort of think, oh, well, I can understand materials make civilization you need tools to build stuff and that allows you to make architecture and clothes and boats and and chariots and wheels and you know and so on but actually I, I would go further I'd say that the materials around you reflect who we are if you want to know what humans are look around you we express our desires our hopes our dreams through the stuff we make and there it is in front of you it's interesting that you say that um, they reflect who we are, the materials we make, the materials we use reflect who we are. That is a phrase we use a lot in our world about our homes. Our homes are a reflection of who we are, of what we want, of what we value. And it seems to me that a lot of these things that you're talking about, stone, bronze, copper, iron, they end up in our homes. I mean, we build our homes with them, but our homes evolve over time. And that evolution is marked by these different ages, by these different materials. Yeah, I think archaeologically, you can see the imprint of our ancestry in our love of wood, for instance. You know, wood inside the home is, is everywhere. 
the floorboards, the joists, but also the furniture. This is a very early material that we harnessed and, and it's a very beautiful material and it's a sensual material. There's a very emotional link. It's not just functional. Wood is homely. Wood is, it brings you back to your origin, your center, your core. And I think that's the cultural significance there playing out in the material choice. The materials we choose are also practical. I love Mediterranean culture. And you go to the home and it's full of tiles. It's cool to the touch underneath your feet. <laughs> but in, in Britain, we don't have that tradition. Why? <laughs> it's freezing here. It's wet. <laughs> God, we want it to feel warm. And we don't want freezing cold tiles. If you look at the building materials here, it's brick and stone and concrete. You know, you really appreciate the architecture of an exterior of a home, of it being robust against gales and winds and storms when you live in a country like this. And in fact, we couldn't really, we wouldn't be civilized. We would quite quickly deteriorate if we didn't have stone buildings and brick buildings. We've got the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age, but no Wood Age. So what happened? Did wood, one of the most fundamental building materials, get overlooked? Archaeology hasn't signified it, but it's there right from the beginning. There isn't this moment where suddenly wood comes in and transforms things. I think also it's much harder to detect in the architectural record because it, it tends to get burnt to the ground by invading armies or decays by natural processes, whereas stone and metals have been more obvious to see. You could argue there was a glue age, and I, <laughs> it sounds mad, but without glues, it's very hard to attach things. In the early days in the Stone Age, you know, glues were an essential part of making tools, arrows and things, to glue the flint head to the wooden stem. So it was vital. But then when we get into boats and transport, you know, you've got you need glues and you need tar. And they were getting those from wood, both of them. Glue originally came from tree resin, and it was key to making tools and to building. And that's even more true today. Big engineer timber. That uses a ton of glue, and it's allowing us to build bigger and with less weight. We use glue all over our homes. We glue down floors. Plumbing pipes are glued together. We use it on wood, tile, concrete block, and laminates. It's everywhere. So what other materials are fundamental that we've completely overlooked? I think the one that comes to mind first is so overlooked, it's invisible to us. And I mean that it's sort of literally invisible because it's glass. It's, it's the panes of glass on your house or on your you know, building. We didn't always have glass. We had to invent it. And before we had glass, we did have windows and they're called wind holes, window. <laughs> it's a wind hole. <laughs> it's where the wind comes through. We had to have holes to have light and to stop the wind coming through. We had shutters and we had curtains. That's how our ancestors lived. <laughs> And so when you shut those things, you, you went into darkness. Modern society couldn't develop if we're all sitting there in the dark. About 3,000 years ago, the Egyptians stumbled upon a new material, glass. Heating up crushed quartz and plant ash produced a liquid. When that liquid cooled, they had glass. It wasn't very translucent, but it was a good material for making small jewelry or vases. Around 100 AD, the Romans added a few other ingredients, including salt from dry lake beds, and cast the glass into thick blocks. Those could be held together in wooden frames. 
Only the most important structures had glass windows because the material was so expensive. And while they let in light and kept the rain and animals out, they were hard to see through. But glass blowing changed all of that. It created a thinner glass that was more transparent. In fact, the first glass factory opened in the U.S. in Jamestown, Virginia in 1608, just a year after the colonists arrived. During the 17th century, glass was rolled out, allowing for bigger and more transparent windows. Windows were still relatively expensive and a sign of a person's wealth. In 1696, William III in England declared a window tax. Homeowners were taxed based on how many windows they had. So to avoid that tax, well, some people bricked up their windows. The tax was repealed 150 years later when doctors complained that darkened homes were a health hazard. It's weird because not every civilization invents the window and not every civilization invents the glass pane. And because of that, you get different architectural traditions in the world. So you get the, the East, China, Japanese, and the Koreans, who don't have the window until the 19th century. <laughs> and you have the West, so you have you know, Europe and America, who from the Romans have a window. And you wouldn't have thought that thousands of years could elapse with two such you know, different attitudes to, to the wind and the water coming through your house. But yes, it happens. And yet, imagine your house without a window, without any window. Civilization kind of almost breaks down at that point. That's a riot, you know, if your windows are smashed, or that's a hurricane, you know, you're, you're in an emergency situation. Your security is completely compromised. And so is your pleasure and your comfort. Uh, so is, is so much about living at home. It's determined by having secure but wonderfully large windows that let in the light, but don't let in the wind and the rain. And what happens when a society evolves in, in the East, as you say, without glass for a long period of time? If they use an alternative material for windows, do they go down a completely different path? Yeah, they went down a different path. And this is not to say they were not unsophisticated. In fact, they had materials that we lusted after, like porcelain, which we couldn't make. But why didn't they invent the window? Now, it's not true that they didn't know about glass. They actually did know about the chemistry of glass, but they chose not to make panes of glass. And that's also interesting because they were so good at ceramics that that was not useful to them. Whereas in the, in the West, we weren't very good at ceramics, so we developed the glass. And you have a culture of craft of knowledge of chemistry that is absent in the East. And because of that, they invent paper, essentially, paper to write on, but paper to bring in the light, but to give them privacy. And also their way of worship changed. So they were having temples that were quite dark, lit by candles. Whereas in the West, we invented the Gothic cathedral, which is basically a palace to glass. The ripple effects of not making glass were felt throughout Asian society. The really fascinating thing is that in the East, because they don't have glass, they don't invent the lens. Because they don't invent the lens, they don't get eyeglasses and you don't get a telescope. And then you don't get accurate astronomy. Uh, that's when the West started to catch up with the East in terms of navigation, understanding the heavens, knowing that the Jupiter had moons, understanding that the Earth went round the sun, and science suddenly leaps forward in the West because of glass. The Miracle of Materials, coming up after the break.
It's fascinating to think that, you know, if you have a teacup, you don't need to invent the wine goblet, <laughs> the yeah. wine glass. And incredible. If, incredible. And, and, and here we are with our homes. And you know, we have told stories on this podcast before about how precious windows were. People deeding their windows to their kin gifting them um, as part of their inheritance or pirates stealing them, um, that they were so valuable that they were protected and cherished. And part of it's because they were so difficult to make. It was so extraordinary to come up with something that was strong, protective, and you could see through. Tell us about that. Like, why is glass so miraculous? Why is that special? And the magic is that the bonding that happens inside a glass is a quantum structure which will only absorb light of the visible sign if there's a particular electrons that can jump up to exactly the same energy than the energy of the wavelength of light. And it turns out that inside glass, there are no available electron states, so-called, that allow visible light to promote an electron up. That's a quantum mechanical effect. Because of that, the light has no choice. It cannot get absorbed. So it just goes straight through. It's transparent, wonderful. Now, that doesn't mean it's strong. And anyone who's made glass will find it frustrating to make strong glass. And in the early days, that was a big puzzle. But in the end, in the 20th century, we've worked out what it is. And it turns out that it's the size of the bubbles inside glass that determines its strength. It turns out that it's the weakest link that breaks glass. And the weakest links are these bubble impurities. And old glass or bottle glass, you've seen it, you'll see tiny little bubbles in it. And that's what makes it weak. Getting rid of the bubbles and the scratches laid the way for what we have today. Massive glass skyscrapers and huge 20-foot windows in modern homes. But just like the first glass windows, they're expensive. Windows are still one of the biggest ticket items in a house. It's incredible and nobody appreciates when they look through the window that all of this science, generations, millennia of science, is wrapped up in making that as strong and as clear, which was mysterious and sacred and magic just not that long ago exactly you know that is the thing about materials that i find both wonderful and slightly frustrating that when materials come into your life when you really start to ignore them is when you is exactly when you like when you ignore your family right you love your family <laughs> they're close to you they're everything <laughs> to you right and so you completely ignore them but the thing is this stuff is so intrinsic to us right the glass windows on our houses the glasses on our tables when you hold up you look at the wine, you look at the beer, you appreciate them, but you don't appreciate the glass. It's just a tragic thing. The next time my wife tells me I'm ignoring her, I'm going to tell her it's because I love her so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for that. Another material that's been transformative, steel. Yeah, steel is in our houses in a very big way. If you think about your kitchen sink, it's stainless steel. It's all glistening and sort of modern looking but it doesn't rust. Now, hold on a minute. Steel that doesn't rust, that is magic. If you were to go back literally 150 years and say, I can make steel that doesn't rust, they'd think you were a witch. They'd burn you. And suddenly, hold on a minute, no, we can make it stainless. And that not only brings in the fact that we start making these metals in our lives that, that glisten and don't corrode, but it has a much more profound effect because before this, if you're having dinner, you're going to be eating with wooden spoons, which taste quite strongly. The high-class people had silver and gold. Now, why? 
it tastes less strong. In fact, gold hardly tastes at all. Now, stainless steel comes along and it blows them all out of the water because stainless steel tastes even less than those two. And it's cheap, cheap as chips now, right? You put it in your mouth and you're, again, you're tasting the food. You're not tasting the material. Why? Because you're the first generation who doesn't have to taste the material. You lucky things. The invention of stainless steel was pretty revolutionary. Weapons and appliances don't rust. It even transformed how our food tasted. People have been tinkering around with a rustless steel since the late 1800s. And in 1916, a patent was issued for a stainless steel knife. So what makes stainless steel different from other materials? Steel is made of iron and carbon. A tiny amount of carbon, but it's an important amount. But the iron is, reacts with oxygen in the air and it forms rust in, in the presence of water. And you get this sort of reddish, rusty color, yeah? And that reaction is what happens in your mouth, and that's why it tastes so strong. Now, if you want to stop it doing that, you've got to stop the iron contacting the oxygen. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, actually, it turns out if you put two ingredients in, one is nickel and one is chromium, both of which don't react with oxygen, they migrate to the surface and they start forming a chromium oxygen nickel layer, which basically protects the iron underneath. Here's the really fascinating thing. It's, it's transparent, this layer. But now I put it in my mouth and I scrape a little bit off because it touches my teeth. So what happens next? It self-heals instantaneously. So you have a self-healing mechanism in which nickel and chromium are migrating around the surface, grabbing an oxygen from the air, forming an, a repair before you can blink an eye. <laughs> and so what happens? A, you don't taste it because there's no chemical reaction happening in your mouth. B, it always looks bright and shiny. What a material. And in our homes, the, the mark of affluence are stainless steel appliances. We aspire to have a stainless steel refrigerator, a stainless steel stove, something that looks bright and shiny and stays bright and shiny no matter what we do to it. Yeah, and that's about modernity as well, isn't it? That material has really allowed us to feel modern. When we describe a modern American home, the materials we use are steel, glass, and concrete. Now, if you heard our episode on concrete earlier this season, you know that it was the material that built Rome. From concrete harbors to roads, aqueducts, and the Pantheon, concrete was everywhere. The fact that you could pour a liquid stone expanded our imaginations of what we could build and how we could live. If you think about just the simplest thing of driving, you drive to an airport along this roadway, which is the foundations are all concrete, over these bridges, all concrete, with these big high-rise buildings, all foundations, all built, all their cores are concrete. If you just look at this magnificent cities that we live in, it's, it's due to concrete. I suppose it's an ambitious material. That's what it comes down to. It really allows us to kind of, to dream of these huge structures and, and actually realize them. And I think concrete just comes along at that point where humans are really ready for that. The other characteristic of a concrete that catches my attention is the price, cheap. I mean, you're absolutely right that that's a very important part of the concrete story. And I would say not just cheap, but they're democratic. So, you know, if you want a society where everyone has a house, everyone has access to a car and everyone's allowed to drive on these big roads, then you need materials that are cheap enough that everyone can have them, not just the rich. And concrete really typifies that. 
Materials have advanced us from the Stone Age to the Industrial Revolution and landed us where we are today. So let's look forward. The future of material science, that's after the break. In our homes in particular, novel materials, they come in in the form of screens, haven't they? I think that there's going to be a merging of the building structures and the materials we might call decorative and the function. Let me give an example. You've got maybe wallpaper or paint in the inside of your home. It does the job, it changes the colour scheme and, and it changes the, you know, the look and feel. But what if you could dynamically change that? Well, that'd be kind of attractive. Not just because you wouldn't have to redecorate every time you want to change the look and feel, but also because you can modulate the sound by doing that. Because imagine you could turn one room, a party room, into a very muted room if you want to be cosy and, and having a sort of romantic night in. And then you want to turn it into quite a bouncy room, uh, you know, with lots of vibrancy at the click of a button. That's our emotional range. We want our materials to reflect that. And it's becoming more and more possible with technology. How does that happen? At a molecular level, the paint reacts to an electric charge or a sound or something like that? Like, what, how, <laughs> help me understand that. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that your flat screen is a liquid crystal, and when you change an electric charge across it, it switches a nanostructural crystal. It's an assemblage of molecules, actually, and it twists them around, and that changes their optical character. And that changes what you see on the screen. So you, 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 instead of seeing a black dot, you now see a white dot. And that's literally materials, a very thin layer of them that are being manipulated by a tiny charge. But in the case of a screen, you've got a grid of wires behind it doing all that work for you. But roll-to-roll -roll technology is going to bring that your way. So that, that whole technology is going to get cheaper. Mark's talking about animate materials. Think of materials that can grow and adapt to their environments. They could have self-healing properties or collect energy, even change shape. Mark says animate materials are the future. And this is also how the body works, right? You and I are constantly self-healing. In fact, what metabolism of your body is mostly about regulating and self-repairing the bits that have sort of got a bit <laughs> ropey in the last 24 hours. And we, and we need sleep as well to do that. And you can imagine at night, the whole house of the future will go into a sort of sleep mode where it would self-diagnose and start repairing bits of it. Perhaps the mortar in the house, perhaps there's been a storm recently, perhaps one of the wires has got loose. Wouldn't you like that? I'd like that. I'd love that. And, and whatever that thing was that was over the stainless steel that was repairing itself, why isn't it over the paint on my house, for God's sakes? <laughs> why isn't my house healing its paint every night when the sun goes down? There is self-healing paint in um, smart cars now, and, and I think you'll see it more and more in the automotive. And that stuff is coming down the road. One material Mark is involved in is self-healing concrete. Yes, that's one of our projects. We're, we're trying to design roads that self-repair because that's a really big problem, especially anyone who lives uh, in, in places where it gets very cold and then gets very hot in the summer. The roads fall apart. And in fact, it turns out that above certain temperatures, they do already. They have intrinsic properties in them that self-heal. So one of our projects is to work out how to sort of max out intrinsic self-repairing qualities of roads. The future promise of new materials is endless and exciting. 
And a material that I'm fascinated by is aerogel. I've seen it used for home insulation. But exactly what it is, well, it's kind of hard to describe. It's been called frozen smoke. And, and when you hold a bit of it in your hand, it really does look like a ghost material. And that's because it, it's 99.9% air. So it is mostly air. But the 1.1% solidity it has actually makes it a solid. You can hold it, you can, you know, you can pitch it between your fingers. And it, in fact, NASA have used it for experiments. And it does exist in other forms that you can use for, for insulation. And why should it be good insulation? Well, it, it's because it's mostly air. It's actually a foam. It's a glass foam. So imagine the glass, now fill it with air, and so much so, but you can still see straight through it. Why should it be such a good insulator? Well, because it's got these billions and billions of tiny, tiny little holes. You're familiar with double glazing and triple glazing to insulate your home. Now imagine billion glazing, <laughs> okay? This is what it is. I mean, I've held a piece of it on my hand and then I've had someone put a blowtorch on top and I can't feel the blowtorch. It can absorb that much heat and it won't conduct it through these billions of tiny little holes. So it's amazing material, there's no doubt about it. The problem is it's opaque rather than transparent. So you probably wouldn't want it for lights, for windows. Shouldn't we have more materials like that? Yes, we should. It's actually very expensive to make or energy intensive, which kind of amounts to the same thing. Certainly would be ideal in the cavity of a wall, but to your point, super expensive and you know, by consequence, we use EPS insulation instead because the price point is right. That balance between efficiency and affordability is what gets things into our homes. Yeah, that's right. But as technology makes materials more dynamic, are we also making them too complicated? One of Mark's latest projects is called Dare to Repair. Basically, our homes are filled with things that are high tech, but they also break a lot. And the end result is that when a washing machine breaks, it's often cheaper to get a new one than to fix it. Self-repairing stuff is, is going to be a big feature of the 21st century. I'm very sure of that. You would love us to be able to repair the things that we have in our homes so that we can extend their life. And in listening to your conversations on this subject, you know, I was taken by this idea that manufacturers, they are striving for durability. And in the process, the more sophisticated the product gets, the less accessible it is for the welder or the tinkerer or the steelsmith to actually work on it. Are we getting to a point where we are going to become a disposable culture because the things that we use are so sophisticated? You and I both will not be fixing the nanotechnology in our house paint. We just have to accept that, right? Yeah, I, I mean... I I think things lasting longer is an imperative environmentally. So that that's we have to get to the point where our washing machines last 50 years and you're handing it down to your, you know, you know, you know these adverts for these fancy watches where they say, it's not just for one generation. And you see the father, you know, all that stuff. But I want to see that advert for a washing machine, right? Because that's the way we're gonna we're gonna make net zero and we're gonna start looking after the, the planet. But how do you get there is the question. Now there's two ways. One is that the machine itself repairs itself. And I, that's a direction of travel that we're working on in our lab and other people are, but it's not going to happen in the next 20 years because that takes a long time. In, 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 in the meantime, washing machine <laughs> durability is becoming difficult. Often they'll say to you, we'd like to sell you a new one rather than repairing it. So you, you're locked into this cycle of constantly buying new stuff 
instead of preparing it. But isn't it inevitable, though? I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, when I hear about plastics and injection molding, I have no hope of mastering those skills or being able to tinker with them. But it sounds like there's a trade-off between modernity and all these marvelous features and its repairability. I take your point that ultimately everything should be repairable or repair itself. And then at some point it's going to reach the end of its life, like us, you know, after 100 years or so. I would like my washing machine to last 50 or 100 years. And then, and then, I, then I think it can go to the, to the washing machine heaven in the sky. Well, I have to say, Mark, I was blown away when I heard the first stories about people passing on their windows to their children or gifting them as a wedding gift, that they were that valuable and that important. So I'm going to keep an open mind to someday bequeathing my washing machine to my son or my grandchildren. Back in the beginning, when our tools were made out of stone and iron, or in the 1600s, when glass windows were a luxury, we couldn't have imagined the materials we have at our disposal today. So maybe it's not so far-fetched that one day your house will repair itself when you're asleep. The leaky pipes will self-heal. The living room paint will change colors from blue to yellow with the push of a button. The washing machine may become a family heirloom. If we've learned one thing, it's that we're always looking to innovate. And our homes and society will reflect the newest materials, even the ones we can't pronounce. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of the episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch. Production support from James Trout, Andrea Suahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And special thanks to our guest, Mark Miodovnik. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.